Hello and welcome to How AI Built This with me, Liam Wilson. Today in the podcast, I am sitting down with Samantha Rhinus. Sam is the head of data at a company called Affini and one of the most influential people in the technology sector in Scotland, um, without a doubt. So we worked with Sam for the last couple of years um, sponsoring Pi Data Edinburgh, um, which she organises, and also Gogi Scotland, um, where one of our team is a volunteer. Um, so shout out to Rona Kennedy. So both are amazing meetups and networking groups, um, and Sam is very influential in both. She does all this on the side whilst working for a growing startup um, and a whole host of other things. Um, so incredibly busy person uh, and it was great to sit down with her for oh, an hour and a half or so. So quick thank you to Cathcart Associates for sponsoring the podcast. Um, they also sponsor PyData Edinburgh um, and we've helped out in the past with Gogi Scotland as well and I'm sure we'll continue to do so. So without further ado, ladies and gents, welcome Sam Rhinus. Hi. Hello. I'm with Sam Rhinus. We're going to jump straight in. Normally, I start all of the podcasts going for education. First of all, Curry High School alumni. The first one <laughs> the ever on the podcast. The best place to be. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so Sam and I both went to Curry. Um, obviously produces good eggs. But then, yeah, normally I jump into higher education um, from the last few podcasts we've done. But I'm actually, it's quite exciting. So your career path is totally different, which is good. Uh, but yeah, you didn't go straight to... Straight to uni. No. I should say, why not? That's not a right thing to say. You don't have well, to. Go, you don't have to go to uni. I, I, <laughs> but. I think it is an interesting question, and I think in terms sometimes of how people are driven, whether that's by parents or whether or not that's by schools, the concept of going into further education is is always there, and I think some people feel pressurised to go in to do something like that. I never really felt that pressure. I did well at school, not so amazingly brilliantly that I ever felt that school tried to push me into university. Um, but well enough that I kind of, I almost felt like I floated under the radar in some ways. It's like I was just trundling along doing well enough to be okay. You weren't a bad kid, but you weren't I wasn't, straight A's. That's right, yeah. exactly. So um, I, would, I would argue a normal person. That's I was a normal most, person. That's probably most of us, right? <laughs> I like to think I was a normal person. Um, and when I got to, I did complete my sixth year. I was quite young when I finished it. I don't know if that had impact on me, but I was only 17 when I finished sixth year because I was one of the youngest in the year. Ah, okay, I get you. So I did sixth year um, and I did well in areas like sciences. We did not have computers at school. We had no courses that taught that. We had once seen a BBC computer because this was quite a while ago. Um, and I never really had that much interest in it. The, the, what we got shown wasn't particularly uh, interesting. But interestingly enough, my dad, who was an engineer, had a real interest in new technology. And so we actually had two computers in the house that oh. didn't get used because my dad didn't know how to use them. <laughs> he wanted to have a new gadget, but he didn't understand how to use that new gadget. So I had had a little play about with that. I had uh, connected up my cassette recorder, put my cassette in, fired up the appropriate volume and loaded up a game onto one of the computers that my dad had bought and never played. That's amazing. Um, and it was really interesting because at that point when you did that, you could see 
see the code. There is nothing like you get now that it's like a big black box and you can't understand how things are built. Yeah. It was uh, completely open and I could actually see the code, which meant I could edit the code a little bit and I made my name appear up on the splash screen of when the game started. All just and from I, being inquisitive? Just from being inquisitive and going, well, what happens when you do that? That's I can amazing. see the words. To be honest, I still use that technique when I do a bit of debugging in code that I write <laughs> these stick days. Your name on it. <laughs> it's a print statement. Anyone that's listening to this and does debugging will understand that completely. The whole print statement when you're doing debugging is very important. So maybe that was a first lesson learnt. <laughs> but but it never occurred to me that that was a thing that I might do. So when I finally left school, I truly didn't know what area I wanted to work in. But I was good at sciences. And so I started thinking, well, maybe I should just get a job. I'd quite like the idea of earning some money. And so I started looking for a job. And I, I was actually, I think, very lucky that really quickly I spotted something that was a job, a, a company that was called uh, Syntex. It was a pharmaceutical company. And they were looking for trainee lab technicians. I didn't really know what that was, but they were looking for science skills and they were looking for people round about my age. So people without any formal qualifications yeah. other than school qualifications. Yeah, OK. So at that point I had uh, four hires and some big number of O grades, but I forget what it was. So I had actually more than enough to get into university. Yeah, of course. The other interesting thing was nobody else in my family had gone to university at that point. Mm. And so it wasn't really a thing that really made a natural kind of progress for you me. You didn't really have really, anyone to like no, it, learn it, what it was really about? No, I didn't really understand things about the process that you went through to do that. I don't feel it was explained well at school at the time. Um, and I, again, I, I think about some of that nowadays and I see how things like role models and how environments where you get taught, maybe the things that some people think are obvious, that... I don't believe are obvious mm. and often people are uncomfortable flagging up they don't know how to do things because if I again look back to what I was like then I would never have said at school I've got no idea how you go about doing that what do I do to get into university what do I need what forms do I fill in bearing in mind none of this was online this is all paper forms yeah. you had to find from somewhere and I, I really didn't feel I had guidance on that so I think that was definitely a school thing. I don't know if it changed by the time you got well, to uh, say, Curry High School so at that age, which was a while later. Yeah, well, I really enjoyed uni, and I would definitely do it again. But I went because I kind of thought I was supposed to. Um, so when I was 16, my dad said, are you leaving school this summer to get a trade? Because that's what his generation did. Yes. And my mum, who luckily was um, a primary school head teacher was happy to back me and okay. say you don't have to do that uh, so when I stayed till sixth year I, again I was a bit like you I, I was decent at school like alright grades uh, and just kind of went and did a degree because a lot of other people around my age were doing that yes. and I didn't really know what I would do if I didn't so the degree I got was decent and it was it's fairly generic um, the experience was great and I still use quite a lot of the stuff today indirectly but I probably, uh, although we had w way more help in terms of how to do it, like what the process was, I still don't think there was a huge amount of like direction given to people. Like you kind of go to that careers thing and you tell them you want to work in business and they tell you to go and do a management degree. Like it's not, yeah. there's not a huge amount of like thought behind it. Um, and you also mentioned that Kai didn't have computers when you went there. They barely had them when I was there. Okay. Our, uh, <laughs> our computing classes were, were hilarious. Um, so I'm hoping, I, I don't know anyone there now, but I'm hoping it's better. 
I don't either, but that's something really interesting. Maybe we should follow up and find out about I think, that. And I see think where, schools are better. things have moved on to um, with computer science and all that kind of stuff. So we genuinely didn't do anything. But no, that's really interesting. And, and you said you were kind of lucky with the, the role you, you went into. But I remember we spoke about this before. Uh, and you also said that, because you don't know these things when you first join a company, but you said you had some amazing mentors there where there was opportunities and there was a little bit like what you said with um, your dad's computers when you got to play around with them. You kind of did that there, right? That's right, yeah. So I, I, I really do think I was incredibly lucky with the people that I went to work with and it's very easy to feel quite intimidated when you start a new job at any point in your life. Um, I've experienced that feeling on many, many stages along the way. But when you're brand new out of school, so I, I was actually, I was only 17 when I started, oh, you really don't know what work is all about. I had had a part-time job working in a restaurant, so that didn't really prepare me for walking into um, a pharmaceutical company and very formal procedures and having to learn quite complex things to be able to to even do the work in the first place. And I was surrounded by lots of people with PhDs. We had lots of uh, doctors there. That's actually something that's interesting because that's come with me and I have lots of um, feelings about that with regards to data science nowadays. So we'll come back to that later on, I think. Um, so there was lots of people there with PhDs, everybody had a degree, apart from the groups of people that had come in through the route of a trainee lab technician. Yeah. Now, again, I have real um, positive uh, thoughts about how that experience was and it really makes me think about how recruitment works nowadays and how we give opportunities to people that, for whatever reason, do not immediately go into um, some sort of further or higher education and I think uh, I think that's something maybe we come back to later on but I, I think the model for me here was going into a company that was hugely supportive had quite a defined career structure for people coming in at that stage I did day release college so um, yesterday it makes it sound a bit like prison it sounds Day like release. prison, but no, no, no. It was it was a hugely positive experience. Um, I actually spent yesterday with Edinburgh College at the Granton campus. They were running a Creative Industries Employability Day. Oh, brilliant. And um, I went along and uh, took part in a panel that was about women in tech and ran a panel that was about data science to try and share experiences of what sorts of jobs are out there, what you could do, the sorts of skills you use and things. Um, and it was a part of what is now Edinburgh College that I went to at that part and did yeah. day release. So it was called Stevenson College yeah, at that yeah, point. So that. the one down in Sight Hill. And I did, uh, it was called Life Sciences, but it's so a combination of chemistry and biology. And they yeah, okay. were the subjects I liked at school. And that was one reason why I went into that job, because I liked that at school. They said they were going to offer this opportunity to continue learning. And that sounded like a really good um, experience. Um, I really enjoyed it. I had some fabulous lecturers there, and I really enjoyed the experience of doing that. So I did one year at Stevenson, and then I did two years at Napier. So I did the first two years of a degree in Life Sciences. So that was all one day a week. So really hard work because then I was yeah. working full time as well. Your first job was also brutal because you've never worked full time before. You don't know so what it's like, going to be like. Six o'clock at night, you go to bed. <laughs> you're so tired. That. Well, I was quite young then, so actually I have to say you I were was straight out. I was straight <laughs> out. I have to say I was a bit of a party animal there, and it, you know, it's a wonderful place to work because the. Um, there was a lot of people in a similar age band to me or uh, you know, or, or a little bit older, maybe some of the new graduates that were coming in. Yeah. Um, and it was a, a wonderful environment, really great uh, supportive staff and, uh, and as you mentioned, um, really good mentors. So all the bosses that I had there were very supportive of the continuing education piece. Mm. I think they could identify where they saw 
um, characteristics in people and gave opportunities. Anyone who knows me knows I love to organise. I love a list. Um, and that is a hugely useful thing, actually, to do inside an environment like um, a lab and a bet. pharmaceutical company. Um, because uh, very, very strict organisation is actually a really important part of it. And I just, I didn't really know I had that skill. And I discovered that. And, and definitely my bosses made great use of that. I and I, I absolutely loved it. There was huge aspects of that that I really enjoyed. The fact that my bosses always drove me and gave me opportunities that sometimes felt beyond me was fantastic. And I think that's something I would um, would say that anyone who has, particularly very junior staff, but it's applicable for all staff, but very junior staff who have very limited experience, it's really difficult. And I think we forget sometimes how difficult and maybe some of the internal quandaries that are going on with people to, yeah. to understand that they have a lot of value to a company. And it doesn't matter how experienced everyone else is in that company. You've been employed to do a job and you should be given opportunities to actually um, go beyond what you think you're capable of. And that's how people grow in businesses. That's how people um, take opportunities. And I think it's important for retaining staff. And I think it's something that when it comes to uh, women going into tech, retaining women in tech is almost as difficult, if not more difficult, than actually employing women into tech roles in the first place. Yeah. And I think opportunities for uh, women to get other experiences and to take on things that maybe they're not quite confident enough to say that you know I can do that task I'm going to put my hand up to take to take on that task uh, they shouldn't always have to they should have a boss that's driving that they should have someone that identifies those skills and makes use of them and keeps going so I think I was hugely lucky that I, I believe I had those that's amazing um, first experience because you meant you didn't yeah I think a lot of people have a negative first experience and that changes how they go down their career that's either right. positively or negatively sometimes they yeah. kind of strive on from it but it's really good that you had like the most positive experience so once you have had that amazing opportunity you kind of move on to being a software engineer was that did you go straight into like kind of the from the scientist pharmaceutical role into being a software engineer no no so at the point that um i was really starting to think i i really like the computers i can, I can see that there's something interesting i think i want to know more yeah um the company was going through a bit of a downturn shall we say and i actually had a really lucky opportunity that they offered lots of people voluntary redundancy, okay. which was really super. So I went to university. So at that point, um, again, actually, I was really apprehensive because I wasn't sure at that. So I would I would have been around uh, 25 at that point, And I wasn't sure whether or not my skills were right to be able to get into university. You know, again, it hadn't, hadn't been there, that thought, when I was at school. Yeah. And I still was really nervous about it. And I wasn't sure whether or not I would you know have enough qualifications now at that point I'd actually done another hire so at that point I was sitting with five hires and a whole bunch of old grades and I was still worrying that I wasn't going to get into university it's, with almost seven years experience of, yeah. of working as well but I still had that worry of oh maybe I'm not the right person I don't know but I thought what is the harm of actually applying so I applied to five universities thinking well maybe one of them will <laughs> let me in um, and I got five unconditional places you know it was just it was just an amazing moment the first, when I opened up that first one it was just like oh that's great well at least I've got one to go to and then they all turned up did it finally give you a bit of confidence oh this is really good actually they think I can do this this is really quite positive so I was I was really delighted when I got that so no I, I went and I, I did a four-year 
honours uh, course in uh, computing science, it was called then. I did it at Harriet Watts. Oh, how did Harriet Watts? Oh, did we? Oh, we've yeah. never discussed this. We, did, we didn't know we've got a shared we, uh, academic history. We did not far fly from where we were from, right? Curry, <laughs> no. curry to Harriet Watt. No. This is the closest one to us, so that'll do. Well, I didn't. I no, didn't actually. I didn't live in Curry at that point. Actually, I had left Curry, so I lived in a different part of Edinburgh. Ah, okay. Um, I had left Curry, but um, for reasons, various reasons, I had kind of connections back into that. Yeah. So uh, I chose to go to Harriet Watt, and I loved it. I really, really enjoyed it. There was certain aspects of it I didn't enjoy, and for a number of years I worked as a mentor with the career service at Harriet Watt oh, nice. because I was concerned about something that I just didn't realise and this was when I started my degree I discovered something that I really hadn't been aware of was the gender bias and the fact that very few women are well were and are doing any form of software engineering. I really had no idea that that's what I was going to find. And on my first day, I turned up to find about 160 men. And we were probably at about a dozen women at that point. Mm-hmm. We had a few sort of combinations. It was a, a department that was electrical engineering. Yeah, and they kind of bring software engin- them together, Yeah, right? software engineering. So we had, a few, we had a few more women that were maybe doing a combined uh, uh, set of yeah. uh, qualifications. And I just didn't know that. And I, I was so surprised when I saw it. And um, Harriet Watt, I think, is really good in terms of the way that they taught the course. But what I was really concerned about was that lack of women. So I acted as a mentor to try and encourage the women to stay with the course. Because by the time I got to fourth year, we had uh, we were down to about 60 men. And there was only two women who were... Um, pure computer science. So again, a we had big a drop off on both sides. Like, why was there so many that didn't get through it? Just because. Well, that's life in university. I mean, yeah. after first year, there's a big, big yeah, number that drop that as out well. as well. I think it's. I think it always happens. Yeah. But it definitely proportionally wise was quite oh, scary yeah. to see it at the end and have that. And as I say, we had a few more women that were doing sort of combined versions of things. Yeah. It wasn't quite that. You're a lot closer to it than I am. What does a computer science class look like at Edinburgh Uni? Harriet what now? In terms of gender balance. Well, do you know, I, I don't think I can give you the exact proportions for that, but I can tell you about Edinburgh College because yeah. of the fact someone told me these yesterday. Oh, good. So they actually noticed that there has been an increase in terms of the number of women. This year, they said, is the first time they've really noticed, but there's still really low percentages. So in a room full of maybe 30 or 40, they've maybe got six or seven women. Wow. So it's increasing, but really slowly. Uh, Edinburgh College was really interesting because they've got a lot of women that are teaching in the computer science department. So they said that, you know, they're there as role models. They have, you know, experience of what they've done in the past. And yet still the numbers are relatively low. So we'll get into, I mean, we won't get into this actually because it'll take, we could talk for hours on it, but <laughs> we're, so there's obviously a failing at potentially late primary school all through high school. It's a failing maybe a harsh word, I don't know. But I think it is a harsh word and I think there are certain words that are used with regards to the uh, diversity issues that we see in tech. And there's some words that I really dislike. And one of the words I really dislike is about the use of the word pipeline. 
Um, no, which is kind of what we're, people pipeline. Which is what we're talking about, isn't it? It's the pipeline. And that's because I frequently hear people talking about it as an excuse as to why they're not doing something or they're not being able to see change at their level. And it's almost like if you, you always go back a stage, which is why I'm really reluctant to agree completely with what you've just said. Yeah. That I can't deny, I think there's problems at all the stages. Yeah. But I don't think it's ever as simple as saying, let's just step back one one step from where we are and say well that must be where the problem is because yeah. it's, it's not it's far more fundamental than that I think oh I know I think it will be I think I'm just thinking, trying to think from like an encouragement point of view even when I was at school though the computer science thing never really got pushed again is the wrong word but for some reason today I can't find words but you didn't really get like there wasn't really a suggestion of going into a computer science degree like all the people that I know that did it were kind of like you they had that kind of inquisitive mind they, they kind of worked out that's what they liked doing and when I was growing up we were kind of maybe one of the we kind of got the real boom of tech like right mm-hmm. at the end of primary school middle of high school that's when yeah. all the like everyone had mobile phones everyone had computers like it was just it was at that time so people could really play around with like what we would now call modern technology yes. um, so some people just liked it and got into it by doing it but we weren't really encouraged or, or taught about any of it so I find it I mean as it happens I'd be the world's worst software developer but at school I didn't really have the chance to even find that out so like people like me who maybe could have got into that never really had a chance I think one of the I think one of the big challenges I, I think there's often opportunity that people kind of come back to schools and say well the problem is there but you know schools are not the be all and end all they have huge influence on children of course but so does everything around that and schools are not um, miracle workers that are expected to be able to deal with absolutely everything and do it you know to the best of what they probably want to be able to do as well you know they've got limited budgets they have limited times limited resource a teacher as a mum I'd realised that being a teacher is actually not you, you don't really teach like that's like the last really part of hard. your job. It's really hard, which is why I'm I'm really reluctant to make it sound like that because I don't think that's true, and I think a lot of problems sit actually almost at the other end if we were to use the dreadful word pipeline. I think a lot of the pro- problems sit with businesses and about how they engage and how they do something to change what they claim they want to see change in, mm. and I think schools find it very difficult to be able to demonstrate to the kids all the opportunities that are out there. So the words software developer, while I was at university sitting in there doing software engineering, um, spending huge amounts of time coding, lots of other topics as well though that you do as part of a a software engineering degree, Mm. um, including things like um, the ethical side of that which is definitely something that is growing in terms of looking at the ethics but they were almost almost considered a a little um, side module but it was taught but in a very small um, in a very small way when I was there yeah I think businesses and the tech community need to share far more about the different sorts of roles that are in tech and that's one reason why I'm really, really keen to get out and talk to people, whether yeah. or not that's at kind of community building so that people who are maybe already studying it or have just graduated and are trying to uh, choose the appropriate job that they want to go into, or whether or not that's further back and it's um, at school level and, and they're trying to understand what jobs might they find that they are really interested in and help drive what subjects they choose to study. Um, I think people hear the word software developer and they think that's it. 
that's the job. If you go into tech, that's the job you do. Now, that is just one role. And I think the word developer sometimes is the one that has negative connotations with it. It's the vision of a man sitting with his headphones on, head down at a desk, slightly darkened room, multiple screens, typing frantically, and lots of stuff floating past on their screen. Um, Films, TV, that's how you get displayed. That's what's shown on there. And that is just not true that is not at some points maybe that's exactly what people look like but i'm not sure about the darkened room part but that's not one what makes up the whole part of a role as a software developer yeah and also it's not just a role that's in software tech there's lots and lots of different types of roles for lots and lots of different sorts of people whether you're creative and you're much more into the design aspect of it Uh, yesterday again we had some wonderful examples we had some design students that were along um, and came to listen to the women in tech panel and the data science one so we were talking about opportunities there about things like visualization um, how you communicate tech to the public that make use of tech you know you're designing something for people it's all about people Uh, how you do that needs people who understand how to communicate through uh, visual interpretation of what you find uh, also verbally you know it's really important for people who can communicate well and tell a story that people understand they don't get into the techie details of how you achieved whatever the outcome was. Yeah. Rather, they can communicate it really well to you. So I think we're slowly getting because I see it a lot as well. And you, even when we're doing calls with hiring managers who are asking to bring people into their team, they'll say like, "We don't want that stereotypical. Doesn't want to talk to anyone. Darkened room coder like that won't work in our business." So some people are now getting to like understanding that. But some really successful software developers and data scientists that I've worked with are like some of the most communicative people I've ever met That's and right. they can talk to an idiot like me about what they do and I can understand it. And that's hugely important yeah. and I think sometimes that's something that's not seen. I think it's important though that actually you know there are some people who find that part very very difficult and that doesn't mean there's not a role for them no. in tech but rather it's about forming teams and it's about forming diverse teams. Play the strengths. And that's absolutely it. That's, and that's, teach, like you said earlier, because you can teach a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. Especially, I don't know if we're going to have time for getting onto the degree thing in huge amount of detail. It's the one thing that pisses me off most in our job as recruiters is when someone insists they have a degree to get the job. Like if a client says they, uh-huh. must, they must have a PhD to be in our data science team or there's a couple of clients who obviously I will not name, but... They, they will only take people from the red brick unis or like the yeah. Cambridge Oxfords of the world and it's it's just beyond idiotic it's the it's the the wrong thing to do yes you might get people that are really good at certain parts of it there but they'll all be the same right they'll all be the same and and I, I truly believe that diverse teams that create the end goal whatever that is businesses have very different sorts of goals but having diverse teams and being able to have them interact well with each other which will change and it will be different for different companies and it will work differently for uh, different products that you're creating but you have to get people communicating with each other inside the business and you have to have the right people that are able to communicate outside that business as well out to your clients or your customers or whoever it is that's taking the message out and that's where lots of opportunities come in and I think to expect everyone to be able to code 
to be able to work in tech is actually something else I'm not 100% keen on the whole no. um, let's teach coding to everyone because there's some people that will never be able to code and that's absolutely fine. There are other Definitely. opportunities. They'd have to find a different way in. But I think that's down to how are we employing people into certain roles? Do we understand the sorts of roles that are genuinely needed? I think that's another thing businesses get wrong sometimes. Yeah. Um, data scientists is a really interesting one. That's you know a big focus for me now where I work. And often uh, companies, because we, we sometimes work with companies who are starting to build their data science team and don't actually have in-house skills to be able to do that. Yeah. So what we can do for them is kind of take on a role um, like head of data or yeah. chief data officer, whatever, whatever you want to describe it as, but a role that drives that and steers the business to start to be able to have their own in-house data science team if that's what the business needs. Yeah. They don't have the ability to recruit those people, so they don't know how to ask the questions. And what we've sometimes seen is that they've tried and it hasn't worked because what they've done is a generic data scientist uh, role. That's how they've advertised it. Yeah. They've got a lot of people that have amazing skills, but actually that's not what the business needed. Perhaps they were at the end of needing more data engineering skills to start pulling their data together. And what they've recruited is someone who has less of those skills, which are far more a data uh, data engineers. I would say that more of my skills lay at the data engineering side, but I've built on that and started to have far, far more skills yeah, okay. in data science. Data engineering is one of those where, well in fact you mentioned it already when someone puts a generic data scientist data scientist advert up, they want a analyst, scientist, engineer kind of programmer. That's right. And like you you can't really do it. I saw someone post something, the usual kind of rants on LinkedIn, but someone posted a full stack developer role and listed all the skills that the advert had suggested. Uh -huh. And the person then said that's actually an entire IT department. That's right. So data yeah. scientists kind of get in that way. Like you're asking for a person or two people to be an entire data department doing everything. That's and right. And it's maybe not fair. It's unrealistic and it's and it's not fair. I think that's a lot to well. expect. Yeah, assuming a grad will be able to come in and do all those yeah. things is They've is got a PhD, really so they'll be able unfair. to do all of it. It's a bit like you when you went into that company and you were given opportunities and you were given further learning and you had great role models. It's the opposite of that. You've been brought in on X, X money as the only data scientist and you've got a PhD from a good university. So you'll probably just be able to work it out. So we um so we see skills often that are missing out in that type of person um are some of the, the ones that for me were the things that I learned as a software engineer. Yeah. So you know, my first job after graduating was as a software engineer. And I worked in the area that nowadays would be called sort of DevOps. So it's it wasn't the development of the actual product that yeah, we yeah. were creating, which was a predictive modeling tool. And that's actually when I started learning about data. I hadn't really thought about data. Yeah. And I, looking back at that point, I could see that there was um, experiences that I had in the pharmaceutical industry that were all about data and about how we analysed it. But it was a very early stage thing and we didn't really know what we were doing. Um, when I started working with the company Quadstone, so we built predictive modelling software. So would you, what would you, if you were in today's world, would you be the DevOps engineer of Quadstone? Um, yeah, think? it was a little bit broader than that. But yes, there was definite aspects. A lot of the tools that you use for DevOps nowadays weren't in existence at that time. So yeah. a lot of it was in-house. So we built, uh, we wrote our own frameworks for doing things like um, automated testing, uh, continuous build deployments. Yeah. 
um, we did uh, manual testing fell into our uh, team as well, which was actually a fantastic thing. You know, sometimes there's uh, a kind of negative opinion of uh, people that do manual testing. As, yeah. Oh, it's that's an easy thing to do. Um, anyone could do that. That's not a skilled job. Absolutely not. And anyone that's doing that probably isn't very good at it and doesn't understand what you actually need to do. Yeah. I discovered really early on that one. I love breaking other people's software. And two, I I know, I know. Uh, Two, I'm really good at breaking other people's software to this day, which makes, you know, people I work with a bit twitchy when they hand me their code as to what I'm going to do to it. But I discovered it's a real skill. And when I, um, as I uh, developed in that career and I I started running my own teams and I started recruiting quite a lot, uh, I never wanted to recruit people that wanted to be developers to work in that team because they were the wrong people. They didn't have the same mindset as somebody who uh, wanted to break the software. And there's there's a skill. It's not about breaking and bragging that you've broken everything. You're trying to find It's actually of benefit. And it's finding a really good working relationship with your developers that are, you know, that you're using the code that they're writing. And also, I think because we developed our own code, but it was the internal stuff for running frameworks, you also experience it. And it's actually, it's it's horrible that first moment that you write your code and then it it breaks horribly and you break the continuous build system or something. It's a really horrible feeling. And so actually it's an important feeling to understand so that when you find bugs in someone else's code, you know what it feels like. It's not about going you wrote bad code, you're really rubbish at doing that. It's never that because everybody writes bugs. Nobody is perfect when they come to writing code. I think that's probably and the best part is that nobody's gonna, nobody does it perfectly. No. So don't get annoyed if no. someone finds some problem. And work well, you know, find a way to work together. Yeah. Uh, often teams, the way teams are structured these days, sometimes uh, teams don't have people that are exclusively focused on the testing aspect of it. And they work, um, it's much more the developers that are writing code. But actually, I don't think that's always worked. I've definitely seen teams and clients that I've worked with that that's not working effectively and yeah. it's not got good testing going on because they don't have someone with the right mindset. I always considered myself a software engineer. I never considered myself what, what somebody might call a developer, but I wrote lots and lots of code and um, I objected at that point to ever being called a tester because I actually think some people use it as a derogatory term. Yeah. I still think that to this day. Well, that's something so Erin, who does all of our testing roles, has really taken on uh, kind of like a defensive testing because when she speaks mm-hmm. to a lot of companies and tells them that she will look after all the testing requirements like, oh we don't need testers or yeah. we don't hire testers or um, the person you've sent us doesn't really have enough automation experience and Erin's kind of really fighting people's corners now Yeah. to say like it's actually a really important part of the way you've set up your company it is. You, you actually it need is. someone to test stuff. And you do need a mixture of skills. I think the, the automation part is really important yeah. because of how DevOps in particular is done these days. And I think um, there was some aspects of uh, code getting flung over a wall at one point and never looked at again if, if the developers had their way. And I think that's very much gone. And I think that's been a huge benefit of yeah. creating teams that are different structures and the way that they work together nowadays. So I think there's really good things come out of all of that. But I think it's always given me a grounding about how you actually validate what you're working on. And data science is a really interesting area. And I think that's a, another big challenge for anyone who is coming in as a relatively new graduate into data science and doesn't have some of those software engineering skills. So that's, again, something that I aim to bring with my role that I do now, is that we can help businesses 
blend data science skills that they need, understand what it is that they need, blend them in with the teams that they already have and make it functional teams so yeah. that it's not a completely separate function that is struggling to come together with the development team that they have. We've seen um, that loads where data science gets lumped in with like marketing or finance because that's the teams that have like the data and they sit on different floors from the dev. I saw that recently with finance actually. Oh, and that, you know, that was my first experience of seeing it with finance and, and yeah. I, I, that really surprised me. I've seen me. finance and marketing more than I've seen tech. So we had this whole discussion with uh, with Adam Shoka and also a few other people that like where does a where does a data team sit and I think how you described it, it makes more sense than most that it, it shouldn't really sit in marketing or finance and it should probably be linked with engineering because there's going to be crossover, I would have thought. I think it depends what the need is and the need for businesses changes. And I think that's a really important part. You know, sometimes our first engagement with a client will be go in and do a data review with them and actually understand what have they got, how are they working, what tools are they using, what data do they have, and what are they already thinking about that, they want to do and that made them get in touch with us and want us to go out now sometimes that's very vague because they're really not quite clear what data can bring for them but perhaps they've been reading about it or they've uh, seen a competitor this is a great one to get people in touch with us they've seen a competitor who's suddenly talking about what they're doing with data and how this This is is improving their business like someone in construction suddenly leverages AI so they're all on the phone to to you and Joe and asking how can you do that for us we work with a really broad range we have tech companies but we have lots of people who consider themselves non-tech now actually what the function of their uh, company is is non-tech but there's very few companies who don't aren't uh, don't use tech well, they're in some powered way. by tech almost like a they lot are of powered by tech they're using things um uh, spreadsheets lots of excel spreadsheets are getting used to uh, collect information yeah. the minute we start uh, right back at the beginning with them to maybe teach a little bit about what data science is all around yeah. we start with trying to explain to them what data is and for them what is data yeah. and for them it's information and knowledge some of it is captured inside apps and tools that they're using it's inside spreadsheets it's in their heads lots of times because they yeah. haven't really thought about <laughs> how could I make use of that how could that help the business to grow if we do something and so that education piece is really important but then we, we move through that and start looking at what can we do with the business and I think my experience from that early days of working as a software engineer and building teams and learning how to make them functional and really importantly learning how to make the whole thing functional so it wasn't just about code that came from from the developers it was about every single aspect of that so it was about the infrastructure that allowed us to manage the code base it was about how we managed the code base for our automated testing a favorite question of mine when I was recruiting people that were going to go into a testing role was how do you test the testing how do you know you're doing testing well and not everyone does that um, how do you validate the outcome of what you've got and if you're not doing that well you might have a test that's giving you um, a, a false positive so you think you're doing well but you're not mm. data science is exactly it's the very same. like that isn't it it's very like that and I think that's a real problem and I think it's something that um, I've certainly worked on a number of projects about developing tools and processes and techniques to validate what you're doing in data science and actually have ways to prove that the changes that you're making are valid 
and that the impact you're having on the business is what you're aiming for. Yeah. Um, it's And it's difficult. It's actually really difficult because data is constantly changing underfoot. Yeah. Software is sometimes quite a fixed thing until yeah, you get to your next release. Like a big chunk of it, you kind of yeah. keep it. Yeah. It's an, there's an internal aspect of it that you've got builds going, and yeah. as you're making changes, you've got all your automated testing that is being run frequently. Yeah. So you'll identify if there's any problems. If you have real time data science at play within your business that is making a decision for you, so as an example, you might have a website that has to display items that a client might potentially purchase. Yeah. And you might be using data science at the back end to identify the best items to display to them. Yeah. So therefore, everyone's getting a different selection put in front of them. If you deploy a new model that makes the decision about what am I going to show to this person, because ultimately what you want to do is the ones they're most likely to yeah, buy whole, like, because you want to make money. That's what you're there for. customer recommendations on your phone. Customer recommendations yeah. on your phone, exactly. If something goes wrong because you've deployed a new model and actually it's a very subtle thing that you haven't got any form of testing to say that it's the right thing. Yeah. Your initial test might look okay, but if you haven't got anything that's deeper and more complex, you might not realise that suddenly what you're showing isn't exactly what you're showing and therefore you might start decreasing your sales. Yeah. You might not be and getting what you want. it comes down to losing money, right? So everyone talks about data science and it's in a commercial setting you're trying to make things easier and help bring more money into a company essentially exactly exactly so there's that aspect of data science but just to come back to what sparked that bit of conversation which was the where should they sit Mm. that's about product that's being um shown externally and going out to uh potential you know, customers, clients, whatever it is you're doing. Yeah. There is other use, and this is a big area of interest for me. Again, because of my kind of past history of the fact that I developed all the internal frameworks that made stuff happen and that took code, turned it into an end product, which at that point ultimately ended up burnt onto a CD. And I would take that CD and I'd get on a plane <laughs> and I would fly uh, to a customer site and I would work yeah. in some of their great big server rooms installing our software onto their machines. That right when everything started getting like, yeah, like, uh, like smarter and smaller and cloud, remote and the cloud, cloud has a big, like big impact st- on that. Stopped flying around. There's huge positive things to that because of the fact that you know, actually, it's pretty bad that you have to fly to be able to install a bit of software. Yes. Um, and you know, if you start looking at things like carbon footprint for stuff like that, that's pretty bad. Um, however, being able to just sit at your desk and do it took away huge opportunities for people. I did some amazing traveling in that part of my yeah, career. Lots of cool FaceTime, meeting people. Like... Lots of really amazing things. You know, I worked, um, I spent time working in so many different countries. I did a couple of weeks in the Caribbean. I mean, honestly, I have been to so many places. One? The Caribbean the was the most exciting, I think, because I'd never been to that area of the world, and I love and I spent you know That's a couple amazing. of weeks. Um, you kind of take your time to install some of the software, like to tell your boss that there was bugs. And <laughs> it wasn't working. No, no, we had a we had a fixed period of time there anyway. I knew oh. I had two weeks there, so I, you know I was really lucky. But you know I've been all you know, all sorts of parts of Europe and things like that. That's um, in another role, we had an office out in Kuwait, so I'd never been out in the Middle East, and I worked out in the Middle East for a while, so that was really interesting as well. Really great opportunity. And I think that's a really good thing about this whole industry. There are lots of opportunities and I have been to all sorts of places and met all sorts of people. And I wouldn't have been able to do that, I think, if I had done um, a slightly different role in the tech industry. I found out quite early on that I can talk to people and I'm, I'm an intermediary between the tech 
really tech side of things and the people side of things because I love the people side of things. I love how people interact with software, with tech, with each other and being able to do the technical side of that and bring those skills I discovered was hugely powerful for me and really made a difference to the roles that I got into and how I kind of built my career. Well, we spoke about doing this podcast and you actually said that when we were looking through the notes of all that you kind of appreciated the fact that we were focusing on the tech background because everybody, not everybody, some people just assume that you're doing lots of, I don't know what they would call it, like kind of project management, business analysis type work because you do speak so well and you sit between tech and you organise events and yeah. you are involved in so many tech events but maybe people just don't know from a technical point yeah, of view, I you're think that's true. Pretty, like, pretty strong. <laughs> I think that's absolutely true. I think because I'm not what people expect. Um, if I if I go back to that, that uh, you know, getting on a plane and flying out to clients, often at that point I'd only have communicated by emails. Yeah. Having a male name as well, considered a male name, Sam. Did you did you never sign off Samantha? I didn't used to, but interestingly, I've started doing it recently. But um, I tend to use Sam all the time. Um, so my wife does that too. Yeah, certainly at that. But yeah, everyone's called Sam these days. It yeah. turns out. <laughs> I always like to say my partner Sam just to make people think. <laughs> and it's true. I actually I have found it almost quite funny at times. The impact of having that name is that you know what my gender in has absolutely no bearing on my ability to do my job. So if you had people kind of like. When you turn up to their office to install the software, being I'm like, not what they expect. Sam, oh Sam, absolutely right. You mean Samantha? Right. Okay, cool. Absolutely right. That's uh, even, so bad. Even in the past few months, when I have turned up at someone's, it was absolutely clear they were not expecting me because someone <sighs> greeted me at reception. Like, well, actually, I, I worded that wrongly. They didn't greet me at reception. <laughs> the opposite. Because the receptionist phoned them and told them I was there and there was me and there was a man sitting in reception. No, and they came through and they went immediately to the man and said, Sam. Did so you that was uncomfortable, wasn't it? <laughs> no, because it's it was the glorious moment of seeing their face Did when they realised in horror what they had done and oh, how so inappropriate bad. that was. It's actually quite a good segue. So although we've still got some time on kind of what you have been doing and how you got to where you are. So we've talked about where you are just now, but not specifically. So now head of data at Feeney with uh-huh. Joe and a few others. That's right. Uh, so we are going to speak to Joe on the podcast. We won't go into it in huge detail, but a data consultancy, is that fair? Some people have negative connotations of consultancy. They do. I, I don't. We, we tend not to use the word consultancy because we're a lot more hands-on than that. Okay. So um, we act... We consider it almost like as a partnership. We we act as a data partner yeah. with our clients because we do such a broad range of things with them. Um, we do the data science projects, you know, actually working with them. We're doing the implementation of yeah. what, whatever it is that's that's needed. Um, but we're much broader than that, and part of that is because we saw that there's a big gap in terms of trying to get businesses, particularly the ones that don't consider themselves technical. Uh, onto what we describe as the data pathway and actually yeah. making best use of what they have and how they can do that. So you're starting way before. That's so not right. like not normal data consultancies who are trying to kind of spin off data science and make it like a product offering. They'll come in like when the data's sitting there and they'll do something with it. Exactly. And then they'll leave or ongoing support where you're coming in like a step before that. We do. So, and, and again, that varies with regards to, to who the clients are, but we'll sometimes go in right back at the beginning and run workshops for them that are about understanding data. Do they and even have data? 
do they even have data? Because often they think they don't, but they all have data, yeah. but it's in a different format and a different shape. And they don't use that. And a lot of terminology things is really important with yeah. this. How do they even know that they could do something? So so that's a really important part in terms of skills development. Mm. Um, and that continues. We see the skills part as something that supports all the other stages along the way. Some companies will start on that stage with no data scientists and no real concept of what they're doing. And the end goal for them might end up being that they actually need a data science team. Perhaps it's a small team, but they might even need a team. Some of them will never need that, and they would always use a resource like us for that stage. Which is some help sometimes. That's right. And they can use us for that. They can come in and they can do a a project with us. Um, That would be up and running, and maybe we do some maintenance or something with that afterwards, but they wouldn't need to do it. And they'll get your trust, and you can tweak things, and maybe you have some ideas on the back of it. That's right, yeah. I like the fact that, and it's not just Afini that do this, but I like that there's more companies now that do kind of what I would maybe class as like normal data science. Like <laughs> you're helping companies who aren't going to be on the front page of the news with their AI technology or application of machine learning. But what you're actually doing is just helping a company or a group of companies mm-hmm. understand stuff a little bit more. Day-to-day business. You know, That's some what, of what data we're trying science to is, do. Right? Yeah, we're trying to actually make it a day-to-day thing that can actually improve your working environment. Yeah, it doesn't have to be sensationalist. Like it can just be really... And helpful. It, exactly. Helpful. That's it. I think coming back to what we talked about earlier, that it can free up your time so you can focus on other aspects of your job. Because yeah, I don't business, know right? anybody who ever says, I've got so much time to do my job. I've always got plenty of time to focus on all the parts that I always want to do. I don't know anybody that, that says that. person's not doing their job. <laughs> I would argue they're Probably. not doing their job. And data science isn't going to even take all that away from you. Like, no, you're not no, going to no. make your job so easy that three days a week you've got your feet on the table. Like, that's no. just not how it happens. So I like the fact that that's the kind of message that you, you sell as well. Um, so that's obviously very exciting and I'm sure 2020 for Afini is going to be massive I think it is, we have some amazing projects that are kicking off quite soon, really interesting types of clients and very very diverse um, as I said we have we have ones in the tech sector but an awful lot of them are in uh, very different sorts of sector we, uh, tourism is, a, uh, is one that we've seen more That'd and more people approaching us I think they're really starting to see other people doing it and so they're trying to figure out what can they do some of it is internal work though it's not just about external work so in terms of their internal processes how can they use data better to improve some of that so as an example um Previously, this was a couple of years ago now, but I worked on a project which was all about uh, staff rotas Mm. and actually understanding the volumes of work that were happening and when they had the number of staff available to be able to cope with the demand. But they had quiet times as well. And what they were doing is having the same number of people in. Ah. Um, So this is a really basic example. So uh, yeah, it was all about how do you create a far better staff rota that is accommodating all the the needs that their staff had and it was very varied some worked from home at times some worked you know only a certain number of days but we used data to build a system that um, the managers who were planning all of that could do a far more efficient one and um, it was great it was a really good example of how data can help you internally as well it's not all about external facing stuff it's not all about things other people will see but what it does do is make you more efficient in some ways for your 
business and again a lot of that in that particular scenario was cost effectiveness they needed more people at the busy times and less Less people people, it sounds really simplistic there but it's actually a very complex business and it it had an awful lot more Um, it wasn't a bog standard staff rota so that was quite an interesting one and and certainly a good example that sounds great Um, so yeah we couldn't have you on without going into you said you love organising potentially (laughs) even a frustrated event manager on top of being a a, kind of software engineer and data scientist Um, so you do loads in the community which is an understatement Um, and I'm sure lots of people will know about some of the work you do Um, but you are one of the main organisers of PIDA Edinburgh is that right or the only there are no there are Oh, I was about to say there are four of us, but actually I'm a little a little sad to say that one of them um, moved to Germany in January. Oh, so actually, yeah, yeah. actually we're down at three. So we have three organisers. So three of Pi Data. Edinburgh. And did, we have? did was that up and running before you three got involved, or no. did you notice that Pi Data was becoming like a really cool community and wanted Edinburgh to be part of it? That that's that's very true. Actually, that is the the thing that actually pushed us to making that final decision to getting it going was that Europython was coming to Edinburgh. So Europython oh, okay, is yeah. a massive conference that goes to a different location each year. When did it come to Edinburgh? And it came to Edinburgh in 2018. Oh, what? So, yeah, you've missed it, I'm afraid. I was, I was here, in Edinburgh. <laughs> it was 2018. And um, towards the latter part of 2017, when it was being released that it was coming to Edinburgh, we were all talking about it. In the role that I was there, we were really interested in it. We used Python heavily. Yeah. Um, we did data science. It was the perfect um, platform for us in terms of thinking about that conference. Yeah. And so we were pondering that. And um, a few of us in the data science community in Edinburgh had been just talking to each other because we happened to know each other and had met at other events, saying, you know, um, is there going to be a, a specific data science strand within that uh, conference? Uh, is it just going to be a generic Python one? I wonder what's going to happen. Maybe someone should get in touch with one of the organisers and ask them what their thoughts are. Uh, so we had some links into the organisation team and we asked that and, and they said, yeah, they were really interested in that and thought that they would do it. And at that point we were going, well, PyData is actually part of the same organisation. Um Pi data is all over the place, isn't it? We went and looked at their website yeah. and saw all the different countries that had it's, it's it. Everywhere. Realised that actually, yes, it was a really cool organisation and they were really interesting and they were very, very focused on community building and about people sharing their skills and experiences. And we thought, Ooh, this is maybe a little bit embarrassing if we have a Europython that comes to Edinburgh and we don't have one of those. That seems a bit odd. And so we kind of did one of those moments of looked around the room to see who was going to get that up and running and organising and went, ah, it's going to have to be us then, isn't it? Did everyone look at you? And no, so four of us uh, took it on. So actually three, the three that are still here, we are the original three. So we've had Funding two changes. Members. Yeah, we've had two changes in the other one. Um, and we're just thinking about how we kind of take that forward. So we kicked off, officially we kicked off in December of 2017 in terms of the group, but we didn't actually host our first event until February 2018. So we're hitting so two So we're years. just celebrating two years. That's yeah, amazing. we're just celebrating two years. It's been hugely successful. It feels like it's just always been there now. We expected our first one because we thought, you know, it's quite a specialised area. Maybe we won't get that much interest. And we expected, you know, when we hit 30 people, when we released the tickets, um, you know, you, you first time you organise an event and you do it through a formal ticketing thing. Yeah. It's very exciting. And you watch the numbers tick up. You literally I wasn't excited. I was sit there and watch. The, oh, you were terrified. Oh, I'm so scared. <laughs> but now you get, like, 
between 80 and 100 pretty much every we time, do, right? We do. So our amazing. very first one, we got 104. Even though we expected 30, 30 <laughs> we got 104 people That's turned out. We had, to, we had to squash them in a little bit. I think yeah. the venue we were in was only supposed to have 100, but oh, we squashed them that. in. Um, um, and no, it was I, um, just amazing. It's, it's, it's so good and like when we I, be, I go to tech events and it's interesting so you might actually disagree with this given that you do two incredibly popular tech events but a lot of these people get between 10 and 20 people turn up sporadically every quarter and that's good because those people are interested in that area it so absolutely no, not a knock on yes. that whatsoever but Pinedale Edinburgh gets 100 every time and you do them regularly um, the one that I'm involved in in Manchester, Michael, we get over a hundred. We get about 175 signed up, which normally means about 100 turn up. Yes, uh, I mean um, we're the same. We get 100. Yeah. The tickets always go, but in reality, we pr- probably between about 80 well, it just to 85 people. Depends on the weather, up. the day, the venue, That's like right. everything, and they're free. So people <laughs> yeah. sign up three months in advance, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I can't do that day." Yeah. Um, but I posted it on Twitter the other day that every time we post it, we're just assuming that nobody's gonna turn up, or 10 people might turn up. And every time so far, touch wood, uh, we've had like over a hundred. It's, it's an amazing thing to get everyone together. And I think Pi Day Edinburgh is. feels like it's been around a lot longer than two years. I think I really think. I mean, our attendees that come in, uh, come along absolutely make it. You know, we've had fabulous speakers as well, but our attendees are such a friendly. Um, communicative bunch that want to share things so one of the parts for anyone who's not been to a Pi Data we happen on the first Thursday of every month though so big plug Um, for anyone who's not been to it the the main speaker does usually about a sort of 20 to 25 minute talk. We're always looking for other speakers that are speaking in the, although it's Pi data, so it's very much Python and data science. It's actually a little bit broader than that. So, you know, thinking about the open source tools that are available for data science. So we're really interested in things like R as well. So we'd love to get a few more speakers that are maybe in some of the other areas. Julia as well. Yeah. So that's another area. We've never had someone talk about Julia. So if there's anyone out there thinking they'd like to do a sort of 20, 25 minute talk, we'd love to hear from you. Um, but we also run the, the section um, about lightning talks, and that's mm-hmm. five five-minute talks that we have. And idea. we tend to get them from um, our actual community that are attending the events. Yeah. Uh, our main speakers are often people that maybe haven't been to one of our events before, but a little bit of a mixture. Um, the lightning talk's a really brilliant thing to uh, do if maybe you're not experienced at speaking in front of an audience, yeah. and it's all very daunting. And it's, it is difficult that first time you get up, but we're really friendly, and we've been delighted about the number of people that have spoken for us in that five-minute talk. We're a little bit more flexible about the topic has still got to be related to what we're doing, but it doesn't have to be about pie thin or are um, we've definitely had a broader range there um, and it's really nice and I think definitely the attendees make it we encourage people who maybe don't know that much you know the people who come to it who've never written a line of python yeah but they want to learn and they want to meet people it's a nice and it's, safe place to do that it's a safe place to do it we and we have some real experts that come along as well and they're so keen to help and um, we had a speaker just before christmas who was looking for help with the project that he was talking about it was a project that he was running in his spare time along with his scout group and he needed more help he needed people that were more experienced with python than he was and he wasn't quite sure about how to do that and he had a queue of people waiting to talk to him afterwards to to volunteer skills so it's not about experts standing up and boasting about all their skills and everything like that that's not the sort of environment we have Um, you wouldn't get that many people coming if that was an environment no it's very relaxed it's very 
open, it's fine to stand up and say that you don't know how to do something or you're not sure how to put where to go next yeah. and that you're looking for some help and you want people to come and, and talk to you. So I, I really love it. I really enjoy the events. I think they've been they've been really super. So yeah, we couldn't have you on the podcast and not talk about Girl Geek Scotland um, or Girl Geek in general. Indeed. So I don't want to assume everyone knows what it is. Um, so if anyone doesn't know what Girl Geek uh, involves... Do you want to just give us a quick explanation of what it is and also what you do for for Girl Geek? I certainly can. Um, So Girl Geek Scotland, as we are, um, is a volunteer organisation. We are made up of lots of women from all sorts of different parts of the tech sector, some who work in technical roles, some who do not work in technical roles, but still work within the industry. Uh, We also have some men who volunteer with us. Um, very interesting stories as to why they got involved. We won't have time to cover off some of them at the moment, but um, really interesting as to why they got involved. Um, The women are are amazing who come along and volunteer and help us run all our events. So we do events like uh, workshops. So, for example, last year we ran a programme of events that were around uh, creating really good CVs, interview technique, dealing with technical interviews, uh, your online presence, you know, how you uh, maintain a professional presence and how it can really boost your profile, all sorts of areas like that. There's public speaking as well, right? Which was We did, yeah, that was one we ran later last year was our public speaking one. That's a real out of the comfort zone. Very much so. And having done a little bit of analysis on the data, because why wouldn't you do that? Obviously. We, um, we can see that in terms of our numbers of attendees, it's uh, definitely a topic that was challenging for some people. So our very first session we had um, an expert public speaker, she does public speaking coaching, um, came along and gave us all sort of top tips and we did some uh, workshops uh, in small groups to learn a little bit more about our own approach to how we do public speaking and the things that make us nervous. That concept of being able to work in small groups and talk to women that are very uh, similar to you and yet maybe very different to you in other ways it's been a really successful part of what we've run with all our workshops in the last year. We've run monthly events and when we reach the point of doing the public speaking one, being able to talk through some of the fears that you have about public speaking, the reasons that you haven't perhaps done it before, uh, some of it is just nervous about talking in front of large groups but actually a lot of it's a lot, lot deeper than that. It's about feeling judged about talking about technical subjects. Technical subjects are even harder to talk about in public than talking about, you know, a particular pet topic that you really love and maybe know passionately about. It can be really hard to talk about. You feel that you're going to be judged by people in the room. You feel that other people are more expert in that area than you are. And all of this came out and it was a, a hugely useful session to be able to talk about that. And I think sometimes our sessions are about understanding you're not alone and understanding that other people that are out there are feeling the same things as you. And as I'm sure we've all experienced, that alone can make you feel a bit better about whatever it is. Suddenly you realise you're not being silly for thinking that you'll be judged for what you're doing. Other people have the same worry. And then you start to understand that if you work together and you work through some of the techniques that our, our coach taught us, you can start to overcome that fear. And for some people with the public speaking one, that was about not wanting to stand up at a conference, not even necessarily wanting to stand up at a meetup and talk, but it was about wanting to do better within their own 
business, their organisation. It so was like a, where people do stand-ups and exactly, meetings exactly. in the boardroom or whatever to be able to like actually... That's right. Yeah, it's really difficult. It is, and it has an impact on your career. I truly believe that. Being visible within your business is really important. And that doesn't mean being the loudest person in meetings or the one that talks constantly in meetings or any of those things. For different types of people, visibility in a business means a different thing. And being able to communicate what you're working on and what your team is working on is a really important thing and can really benefit you. So I think definitely some of those skills came out in some of those workshops we ran. No, that's brilliant. I remember I got some great feedback from um, Erin from Cathcart who went along. She was one of those people who was really nervous about speaking she was, I in front remember, of a room. Yes. Um, she practised it in our uh, director's office before she went along and uh, it was really good. But she was probably more nervous in front of us three than she was... It's in front of the goggy audience, to be fair. It's sometimes difficult talking in front of people you really know well as yeah. well. I find it hard to do that. If I'm practising something, I find it hard to talk in front of people I know really well. Um, and Erin was fantastic when she came along to the final event. So it was a three-piece one. Yeah. We had um, you know, our coaches at the beginning. In our second session, we had uh, two of our volunteers give wonderful talks themselves about their own talking experience. And then everyone got to present a short five-minute talk back into a small group. And then in the final session, um, a few weeks later, and this is the one where Erin was doing her practicing, um, they came back and they presented to a room of, uh, we were probably about 50 people. So we, we tend to have about 50 people we vary depending on the topic that we're doing and how many people we think it will work with Uh, but Erin came back and delivered it and was fantastic she did such a good job so I really hope that you know other people that came along as well really benefited from that and 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 got value out of what we've done no I think so and then just to to kind of look at Girl Geek Scotland in general so you're one of the main organizers I am. Which is a hell of a lot of your free time. That is um, quite a lot of my free time, yes it is. So at the moment I'm one half of the leadership team. We actually, last year we had three people in our leadership team, but um, one of them has emigrated. So, <laughs> not because of Girl Geek. Are they going to do a Girl Geek in their new location? Um, well, Girl Geek as an organisation actually does exist in other parts of the yeah, world. Yeah, I think I've seen one in Liverpool. That's right. So we're sort of unconnected and I am really keen on the whole community of tech and everything. How we bring it together. for Girl Geek. Like that kind of is a thing. Yeah, and that's actually how Girl Geek started. So it was a yeah. woman in London who um, started the concept of Girl Geek many, many years ago. But not in um, a particular style or way that it should be ran, just a general concept. And so it got picked up by lots of individuals around the world. And so there are other Girl Geek organisations. So we do have some contact with them. We actually have a Slack channel. I was going to say that. Share ideas and stuff, which is nice. And get ideas of different workshops. Because that's important is how do we keep it fresh? How do we deliver back what people actually need? And before um, myself and the two others at that point, took on the leadership one of the things that we did was a series of listening workshops to understand what women actually wanted out of an organization like girl geek scotland when girl geek scotland started so it's coming up for 12 years old um i know so it's actually one of the longer um uh, tech sort of meetups that exists you know a lot of them that are around now are only a few years old but girl geeks has been around for a really long time So when it started, there wasn't a lot of other organisations out there. And what we wanted to understand was now, with a very different shape of both the tech industry and the sort of tech community and how information is shared in meetups, where are we delivering back something of value 
to the people that come along to our events. So we did sessions with our volunteers, we did sessions with our attendees, and we did sessions with our extremely important partners. As I say, we're a volunteer organisation. We have no funds in any way, shape or form. And so we look for support from businesses in the tech industry. Um, to sponsor us, to do particular styles of events, to host us in their premises, um, to buy us nibbles and refreshments and things. And, and there's a hugely supportive community for that in Edinburgh. Um, Cathcart included, I can add a little thanks in there because you have supported us at numerous occasions along the way and enabled us to, to put on some of these events. Um, so we listened to everyone who came along to these sessions and from that we started to plan the programme of events that we ran. And if I was to take out a sort of single message that came from all sides, it was about a real lack of support for women who were in a sort of, um, I'm going to say average, but maybe that doesn't come across quite in the way that I want it to. It's people that are actually just getting on and doing the job. They might not necessarily ever want to run their own company, yeah. or they might not necessarily ever want to be in a sort of C-suite position. Or, or like something. even people management, they're just doing or their not people role. management because they actually they're they're hugely interested in the tech side of thing and they don't want to focus on that. Um, and actually, there's very little support for what is the bulk of women working in the tech industry. That is most women working in the tech industry. That's what I meant by the word average. It didn't mean anything else. (laughs) And um, there's not a lot of stuff there. Is if we, you know, we asked the question, if you were um, thinking about getting a new job, how would you know about the good companies that are out there, the companies that are actively trying to make themselves a better organisation, change and be a better fit for the type of workforce that is there now? And how would you prepare a CV? How would you get that reviewed and knew you'd done something well? People were saying, I'd ask a friend who I thought was quite good at CVs. Um, Recruitment um, is obviously an interesting area because potentially coming to a recruitment agency, you could get someone to review your CV, but they felt that that's a very formal stage, like they've declared, I'm looking for a new job. And and some of them didn't want to take it to that stage, so they didn't feel that was the right person to ask. You can't ask the person you work with who's really experienced at recruiting because you work with them and you probably don't want to tell them you're looking for a job. So it was things like that, you know, and so what we tried to do was put together that programme of events that none of it was about saying I, here and now I'm saying I'm looking for a new job it was about developing your skills as knowing how to do that it was about engaging with more people from other businesses so we had speakers at all of our events who came along from lots of different areas of businesses so some of them um, did work in the recruitment area some of them were uh, technical managers and it was what they were looking for when they read CVs and the advice is very different from all sets of them because they all have different things they look for but it was great and you know we tried to get them to deliver you know top tips what were their five critical things that either were the very good things they looked for or also the very bad things yeah, that things put them to avoid, off. Yeah. yeah things to avoid So that was really important for us, that listening exercise, because we started to really understand what we could give back to our community. And um, we got amazing feedback, and the attendees were just incredible. They really opened up during the the breakout sessions that we had so they could talk about, you know, even preparing a CV, the challenges that come with that, and understanding how to do that well, and feeling less apprehensive about it. It's that declaring what you're good at. 
You know, it's a really hard thing to do. I'm so much better at writing other people's CVs than I am about writing my own CV. I've just had to do it. So I just had to do it for my wife who just got a job actually working in a tech company uh, and actually her mum as well. So I've now written two CVs plus my sister's in the last six months. I find that quite easy. Yeah. But I can imagine if I tried to write my own CV, which I probably haven't done for a long time, I'd probably be really bad at it. Well, do you know, if I, there was a wonderful tip that one of our speakers gave, and I think this is a really great idea, and it's something I've never done. So I'll pass that on just now, even though we're not really supposed to be going into these details. But I did love it, and it was true. Stop thinking about your CV as the thing that you prepare at the point that you are going to get a new job. And start thinking about your CV as kind of like a running logbook of yeah. what you're actually doing. So that idea. even if what you've done is develop far too big a CV as you go, because you keep adding on, that project I've done is particularly interesting and I learned new skills. Yeah. Maybe if we were thinking about a tech one, I learned a new language um, or a new uh, technique for doing something. And that might be really good for future use. You might add that on. And in reality, at the point that you might be looking for a new job, you might go, do you know, actually, my CV's far too big now but you're sitting there with a list of the things that you at the time you did them you recognize them as being an important one for the future and you put it on the list so instead of trying to remember them you're rereading them and making a decision as to whether or not you take them off for a yeah. cv that you need at this particular point yeah no, it's and it's just that on. constantly keeping it up to date and so taking things off as well so like if you did when yeah. you graduated and you were using matlab every single day that was maybe a good thing to get you in the door, but maybe you've not used it since your first role and now you're an absolute Python expert. So, yeah, change up. Like, make it a bit more up-to-date. I still quite like having my art higher on, and I'm not really sure that has a lot of impact on it, but I like my art higher because one thing I find quite interesting, I am... I'm quite a diverse sort of person. I have skills and I have interests in a huge broad range of things, as I think most people do actually, but some people sometimes specialise a little bit more in some areas. And the creative side of things is very, very important. And I think the tech industry is an incredible area for using creative skills in very different sorts of ways. I think of my job as quite creative. I'm constantly having to come up with ideas, things to try out. Uh, I've been working this week on um, tickets that we're doing for an event that we're running as part of the Data Fest, yeah. uh, the, the Data Lab's big festival of data that happens in, um, in March. We're running a few events in that, including Girl Geek, actually. So maybe a little plug for nice. Girl Geek at this point. Plug away. Um, Girl Geek is Girl Geek Scotland. However, in the last year, we've been solely focused in Edinburgh. In previous years, actually, it's run in other places. There's been events in Glasgow, there's been events in Dundee, and I, I believe Aberdeen many moons ago. Um, but certainly in the last year we've been focused on Edinburgh um, and so we are going on the road we are doing a Girl Geek road show we are so starting like a big Girl Geek bus so well, Girl Geeks travelling around Scotland w- pretty similar <laughs> one, of, one, of our, uh, one of our volunteers promises us that she's going to somehow steal her mum and dad's camper van and we're all going to set off on that the <laughs> reality amazing. is I think we're going to be on the train but okay. you know I like to have this vision of the Girl Geek minibus anyway so yeah that's what's in my head train's fine. <laughs> so we're starting off in Inverness we are running during the fortnight that is the Data Fest Fringe so we're running on the Saturday afternoon so that's Saturday the 14th of March 
It's in the afternoon. The tickets will be made available in the next couple of weeks and then we'll start doing heavy promotion of it. But please pop it in your diaries if you're listening to this and you're going to be in the Inverness area at that point. It's going to be uh, an afternoon of a slightly condensed version of those workshops we were talking about. So we're going to start off with meaningful networking. That's how we started Edinburgh last year. And it was an incredible session because... A lot of people hate the word networking and get quite nervous about it and don't go out to events. And I think a network is one of the most important things you can have. I think in any industry, but clearly my experience is, is within the tech industry, it's really important. It brings lots of benefits and it's not as scary as people think and it's not as uncomfortable as people think if you get a few kind of hints and tips and ideas about how to approach it. Yeah. So we'll start with that in Inverness and then we're going to do um, a couple more of those workshops around the sort of CVs and interview techniques. That's and a really important thing is that we'll be bringing together people from all sorts of different industries who might not have had opportunity to even meet up and talk. And I think that's a really important part of what we deliver with Girl Geek It's that coming together meeting other women that are working in similar areas to you and understanding who's out there and what support you can bring each other. We can't do everything. We are a volunteer organisation. And there's really, two people trying to organise all these events. Two, well, with, with helpers, there's of course. Two, there's two leadership teams, but we have a core team of about 15 volunteers who we could not do any of this without. It's really amazing what they do. Um, you know, they turn up every month and make stuff happen, and, and these events happen because of them. You know, they're, they're an amazing bunch. Um, but there is still only so much we can do. It's a huge amount of work. Yeah. And so... You know, we encourage our attendees to grow their own network within the Girl Geek Network. And, you know, I know of people that met at events last year and subsequently went off and ran their own events because they happened to meet someone who was, who was working in a similar area, had similar ideas about something they could do and have run really successful workshops themselves. And quite possibly would never have met if they hadn't come along to the Girl Geek thing. Yeah, and I've seen that at some of the events we have done as well. People have met, sparked an idea, maybe yeah. got a job on the back of it, maybe got introduced to someone else who's doing something Definitely. similar. Like it's The network part is really important. I think networking, I try and avoid that phrase when I post our events because networking makes it sound like if we're going to have time for networking, it means that we'll just stop everything everyone stand up and just talk to the person next to them. Yes. Like that's the, like, I hate all that stuff. That's horrible, isn't it? But yeah. if you get a chance to like mingle people, and networking essentially is just talking. So like you can chat to people, find out what they're doing, go and speak to one of the people that did a presentation and ask them about it. Or if you see someone you know, you can catch up with them and they can introduce to someone else. And like the whole point is it's supposed to be something that isn't forced. Yeah, um, and I, I think you said something really interesting there. One of the things we tried to give back to people was the ideas of what they could do and, it, and to help overcome their own nervousness about it. Um, and we use the example of if you're a Girl Geek volunteer, you have a task when you're at an event, you actually have a role to play. And you know, we try to make it uh, really clear what that role is, and a lot of it is about acting as a as a host for yeah. the event. It's about welcoming people into the event. You know, people are coming along; they might not know anyone. We've all been there. We all know how nervous that can oh, be. That's horrific, yeah. And so, you know, having a friendly face that welcomes them in, you know, just highlights, you know, where the drinks are, what 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 what's going to happen that night. Yeah, gives you a familiar face that you you know someone you can go and have a little. It's just chat someone with. that kind of engages with you quickly. That's so right. So you get rid of all. We've got um, there's a great guy on our team, Greg, who comes down to Manchester with me for all the uh, MyKML events and he's just a massive, big, cheery South African guy. And when people come in, he'll tell them where to put their jackets, where to get a drink, like, if they're on their own, give them a bit of chat. And, like, it helps yeah. me so much because on the night, 
there's an often a time where there's only two of us organising it, so we're trying to make sure the AV equipment's working, the speakers have turned <laughs> yes. up. If you don't know what a speaker looks like other than a LinkedIn photo, you're frantically scanning That's the room right. trying to find them. So sometimes you can get a bit lost in the host element of it. Yes. Um, so I think, yeah, the volunteers so will be a, huge it's a really, for that. It's a really important role. It's As well as being really important for the attendees, though, it's also really important for the person that's doing it, particularly if that's somebody that actually is also uncomfortable networking. Because just because you are a Girl Geek volunteer, or as I say, that was just an example, anyone that's doing that sort of role, that doesn't actually mean that you love networking. (laughs) It just means that you have chosen to take that role and you have an opportunity to do something. And you it's almost like you've been given an official stamp of approval to say you are allowed to go and talk to people. And that somehow changes people's mindsets. Yeah. Suddenly it's okay to go up to someone and say, a complete stranger, and go, hi, how are you? You know, welcome along to the evening. Because there's a reason you're doing it. You're not going to look like, you know, someone that is just randomly coming up to you because there's a purpose to what you're doing. Yeah. And so for each person doing that, there's some level of comfort so as an you know if you try to take that idea and how do you apply that to someone who's not in a a host role or something like that um you know we gave the idea that always be thinking about everyone else in the room is pretty much thinking what you're thinking everyone else is thinking i I have no one to talk to so i'll stand next to the coffee machine we all do that because that's a brilliant place that is one of the first things i do when i go to an event i go to a coffee machine and i talk to the person that's standing at the coffee machine already because they're doing the same thing and so immediately it's like you've made your pal for that event and i think that's the really important thing is never ever be sitting there thinking everyone else is loving this even if they look like they're having an in-depth conversation they are probably still apprehensive or getting into that conversation is difficult Exactly. But there's also things we should all do, and I think this is a big takeaway for anything like that for me, for people. It's never just about thinking about yourself. Always start thinking about other people because it changes your mindset and it makes it easier for everyone. And hopefully if everyone does that, it becomes a, a much more easy thing. The going and talking to someone that you see standing by themselves, immediately you've got your new pal. Right. If you are talking to someone... Think about your own body language and about how you're engaging with them. If it's only two of you, then actually that's quite easy because you can usually tell if that's quite a relaxed stance. Yeah. Not everyone picks up on body language and that can be really hard for people though. So if someone is standing next to two of you and you two are having an in-depth conversation and it's not something private and if you're standing at a meetup or something, realistically, it's not really the place to be having a private conversation anyway. So it's probably not. But if you see someone standing next to you, don't wait on them to actually say something. Yeah, you need to open up up a circle, right? Exactly. Be the person that welcomes them in. Just turn and face them and say hi. You know, we were just talking about and whatever it was. And if it was something that was private, come up with some other random topic. (laughs) We were just talking about who's going to be speaking tonight. It sounds really good. That works no matter where you are. Yeah, exactly. So it's Um, very much about think, how can you make other people feel comfortable? And it's amazing how that suddenly starts to make you feel more comfortable as well. No, amazing. And I appreciate we're going to be massively pushed for time, but the networking thing kind of segues quite nicely into the fact that a lot of people might know your name when we post this as a prolific speaker um, (laughs) at events. So I suppose you can tell us if it's... uh, I suppose your opinion on it all but I think you have spoken at a lot of events you do speak at 
Girl Geek Scotland events, um, you organise PyData, you organise Girl Geek, you speak on panels about diversity and also about data um, and just give loads back. Um, and I hadn't really thought about it, but you mentioned to me recently that you want to really encourage other people to speak. I do. Um, the Girl Geek one is interesting because as, an, uh, as a leadership team, we've actually tried to avoid ever being the people that are giving the advice. Now, we have lots of ideas about the topics we've talked on. We've, we're, we're all quite experienced, um, lots of opinions, but that's not what the events are for. That's not our role there. We are sometimes the backup in case somebody drops out at the last minute. But well, it's nice to have that. It's nice. It's, you know, it's an important part of organising. But we try not to be. We try to be a kind of conduit to bring people from other areas in. Yeah. Bring diverse people, bring all sorts of roles, all sorts of experiences so that we all get to hear from those people and learn something from it. So where possible, we try to avoid it. We do the introductions and things, but we try yeah. to avoid it. When it comes to stuff like the uh, panel events and things like that, you're absolutely right. I get lots and lots of invitations to go along. Now, I love those sorts of things and I really enjoy taking part in them. But I'm very careful with what I say yes to because I have opinions and I have areas of interest and um, knowledge that I want to be able to share with people. But I have to be sure that where I'm going to do it is the right platform for me to do that. Yeah. And that... Those, will, those people attending will get real value from what I'm going to say. And also, that I'm not just going along to say the same old thing that I've said elsewhere. And I think that's a really, really important part. And I think as a woman in tech, there is a bad habit of some organisers of events to look at other events and go, there's a woman in tech. I was let's, going to ask you about the token woman on the phone panel. her. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a weird one. And whilst I don't actually think the bulk of people do that, there's definitely been scenarios where I feel like they didn't really approach me because they knew lots about me and thought I was exactly the right person, that I felt rather they tripped over me because they were looking for a woman in tech. And, and you're think, a legend of the game. <laughs> well, it's not the phrase I would have used. And that's why I wanted to use it. <laughs> no, I've seen it. I think I spoke to you about this. I've seen it where I've been asked to sponsor an event or get Cathcart involved in an event to use our network and they'll say oh by the way the panel's five people and right now there's three or four guys on it how's your network for women yeah. and like the first time people ask me I would be like oh I could see who I know and I've started to realise that actually it's a really bad way of organising an it event like they absolutely chuck is. the invite to the to the old boys club and then they're like oh shit we don't have yeah. we don't have a woman yeah. uh, and I've been guilty of some of our Man Camel events there's been four guys um, at the event speaking um I'm quite conscious of it on the podcast as well. But yeah, I like having like a sounding board where I can ask you things around how to be better at encouraging people to come along. Um, first of all, to come to the event, because that's yeah. often the first step. Some people want to come to the event before they speak at it, because I want to know what it's all about. That's right. Yeah, um, I've had a lot yeah. of people say that. Um, but also just making sure it's like inclusive enough and it's thought about at the start of the organisation of it, not once you've got three people in place. Absolutely. Start start with those that actually you're fully aware you usually struggle with, and, and that's the place to start. Yep. It's not the, oh, I know folk that can do it. Um, but, I mean, it, even for me, when someone approaches me and I'm considering whether or not I, I am the right person for them, um, 
we all have responsibility to actually say no. And saying no isn't about um, believing that the event isn't going to be a good event or anything like that or anything about the organisers, but it's the saying no because perhaps it's just the same topic that you've talked about recently. Yeah. Perhaps you know someone who would be much better on the topic that they have come to you about. You did that for and us at an event recently. You said, I did, I, I, I said I might no. know someone yeah. that would be better suited for <laughs> yeah. it. Um, and it didn't end up working out in the end, but it was interesting that you just yeah. said straight away, like, I probably could do it and, like, add something to it but this person would be much better and they don't speak at all the events so somebody's not important. heard their story before yeah. um, that's actually a really good way to finish off there's an amazing initiative that I've actually spoken about on the podcast before but you weren't credited for it uh, <laughs> damn Adam Adam we can see uh, it. <laughs> someone we told you. <laughs> them uh, about an amazing initiative so pass the mic how, do we, right. how do we explain that so, um, Pass the Mic is an initiative that was started by Talat Yacoub, who uh, runs Equate, which is based out of Napier University, which is an amazing organisation doing incredible things for um, women working in the STEM sector. And she was fully aware of the fact that she also receives many invitations to go and speak. That's like a senior person. She's, you know, she's incredibly articulate. She's got... Um, amazing views on what should be changing and how people should be doing things and is really keen to get out there and spread the word. However, she became very aware of the fact that she was the one that was constantly being asked to spread the word. And she realised that there was something wrong there and people were taking the easy option of oh yeah we know this person we'll just go to them and certainly that's that's what kind of has, has made me aware of that and is why I'm saying no more frequently these yeah. days um, and so she started this thing called Pass the Mic and there are online lists we can maybe some way relate the link to these yeah, I can to put this link podcast we, I don't know how one does this no when but. we post the podcast I'll post a link to <laughs> Pass the Mic in it um, and people can add themselves to the list and they can put on a note of you know what their area of expertise and what sort of uh, things they're comfortable doing with so some people are comfortable with like keynote speaking some people are comfortable with meetups you know that yeah. type of thing so you can put in the sort of level of uh, comfort you have about what you'd like to do yeah, and it creates a directory that people should be going to and should be using as a reference to start finding other people to talk about these topics there is just the most amazing bunch of folk out there and um, there was one that was done through the DDI project which was called Women in Data which is also available it's, I think it's hosted on one of the Edinburgh University sites yeah, okay. maybe we can add in that link as well yeah. and it's about 60 women who work in the data sector uh, in the uh, Edinburgh and surrounding area yeah, okay. I'm not quite sure how broad it goes um, and again, it's a wonderful directory of women that are working in data. And I, I used it very successfully myself. I had a completely new speaker come to come along to an event last week that I ran. That's amazing. And um, I'd never met her before. I would never have known to approach her about the topic that I wanted. And I made use of that. And it was fantastic. And, and I hope to um, make use of some of the other women that have put their uh, information into that and do it. And it's past the mic for women only to get like women in tech speaking. Yes, it yes, is. Yes, good. Yes. Okay, just to make sure that's clear. Um, and, and very diverse, you know, in terms of, you know, one thing that we've been talking about with Girl Geek Scotland, we're aware, aware that as a leadership team, actually, Gail and myself, as I say, we, we're down one number this year, and um, we're not very diverse. You know, we are women. Two women don't make diversity. 
two white women <laughs> do not make diversity. That's a good point. So, and I think that's that's an interesting thing. Diversity is is a very odd word in some ways. Well, and people, people just have, use it for one thing, right? Yes. Like their idea of diversity is we need more women or we need more yeah. X, like whatever. They it te- is. Yeah, they tend to they tend to use it quite often. It's gender diversity that yeah. they're actually meaning. Um, and you know we're fully aware of that and thinking about how do we change that and and what can we do about that because we're not diverse, so you know it's that it's it's a real conflict for us because of the fact that we're at a point that we know we need to do something different and we're um, you know trying to engage with other people to get ideas and things about how we can move that forward, um, but it's it's back to that women are not all the same, and yet there's there's aspects that make us all the same. Yeah. So, as I say, we're fully aware of that at the moment and we want to do something about it. Um, but I love uh, initiatives like like Pass the Mic. It's such I think a good idea. And it's so simple when you actually, when we've just talked about it there, director of people who are interested in speaking about X, Y, Z, here's their contact details. And can be encouraged. Now, I think this is another thing. Encourage people to put their names on it. You know, if you've been and you've seen a fantastic speaker, and again, maybe it's someone that you hadn't seen before, weren't aware of, um, encourage them to put the details onto it, and uh, you know, their their information gets out there to a wider audience, and so there's more opportunities. Yeah. But I think it comes back to the thing I said about networking: is keep thinking about other people, and you know, being involved in something like Girl Geek Scotland. We are constantly trying to think about our attendees, how they get value from the events, and our volunteers, how they get value out of the effort that they put into it and what they're getting back. Um, You have to be thinking about other people. And I think if you just get an invitation to speak, it's hugely flattering. It is a really nice thing that people think you have something to bring to the event that they're running. Yeah. But so do so many other people who they might just not happen to have in their network. So yeah. think about how you can actually create change as well in that area. Yeah, can encourage people. people yeah. Um, all right, that's an amazing note to finish on. Where can we find Girl Geek Scotland and Pi Data on social media? Uh, Girl Geek Scotland is probably best on Twitter. Cool. Because I do that quite frequently. On the bus to and from work. On the right? bus to and from places. Um, so is that at Girl Geek Scotland? Is that simple handle? Yes. <laughs> I can put these links into it. Um, Do you know, I can't Pidea, remember if it's Scott or Scotland at the end oh, we'll of it. It's one of those two, but it's definitely got that. And Pidea Edinburgh is very easy to find. Pidea to Edinburgh is very easy to find. We're on meetup.com as well, and Girl Geek Scotland also has a website, girlgeekscotland.com. Um, you can find us on there, and we have a mailing list that you can sign up to on that list as yeah, well. Keep, keep in touch with all the different events. That's right, keep in touch. We advertise so all of them, but Twitter is probably the best place. It's our most active yeah, social nice. media. Um, alright well thank you so much for coming on I really appreciate it thank you very much for having me thank you very much well that was an absolute blast Sam and I can chat for hours um, incredibly easy to talk to really interesting some great opinions and views on how to promote diversity in the workplace but also just being a good person um, so massive, massive thanks to Sam for taking time out of her pretty manic schedule to talk to me about her career the state of the industry how she gets involved in meetups and also kind of helping me get better at my job, which is uh, which is great. Thanks again to our sponsor, uh, Cathcart Associates. I keep saying this, um, but they let me do this for work. I encourage all the team to be involved in the community. So, as I said earlier, Rona is part of um, the volunteer group for Grogu Scotland that Sam and I chatted about, um, and uh, other consultants do other things as well. So, really all because of how they've trained us and let us uh, crack on, really. So until next time, thanks for listening to How AI Built This.